in the uh, last hymn, or last line of the hymn that we just sang, we say, Oh, grant us grace, almighty Lord, to read and mark your holy word. It's truths with meekness to receive and by its holy precepts live. And of course, that, that expresses the reason why in our church's tradition, the the reading and exposition of God's word is central to our worship together. Uh, so the, the sermon, as well as the hymns and prayers, is part of the worship that we give. And so as we come to the, God's word together, we are worshiping him by submitting ourselves to him. Uh, so if you would uh, turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 13, once again, we're going to finish up the chapter this morning. So our text will be the last verses of chapter 3, verses 53 through 58. So let's hear this then as part of our worship and as God's word to us this day. And when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there. And coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue, so that they were astonished and said, Where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. This text marks the end of the summary of Jesus' teaching that we've been looking at for several weeks from Matthew chapter 13. Remember that Matthew has three—I mean, five sections of Jesus' teaching. This is the third one, and the first part of it addressed to the crowds, then to the disciples. And so that's come to a close. We've seen this emphasis on parables in this section of Jesus' teaching, and now— now that's ending, and we're transitioning back into narrative. And we're taking a geographic turn here uh, from the area around this, probably the Sea of Galilee, Capernaum, and that vicinity uh, inland to the hills back to Jesus' hometown in Nazareth. And, and this calls to mind, actually, and the mention of his family here in this text calls to mind the last part of the narrative before that section of teaching. Remember back at the uh, end of chapter 12, there is a reference made to Jesus' family. Uh, they come looking for him, and sort of reading between the lines, you get the impression they're sort of concerned for him. They, they don't understand what's going on with uh, this person that seemed uh, so familiar to them uh, over the years growing up, and now he's now he's doing things that are really hard for them to understand, and so they show up looking for him, evidently can't get to him because of the crowd, and somebody tells him that they are there, and, and you remember his response there at the end of chapter 12. 
who is my mother and who are my brothers? And we could read that siblings. It could include sisters as well. And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Jesus is forming a new family, as it were. Are you a part of that family? I hope and pray that indeed you are. Well, this incident in, in Matthew is paralleled by Mark's account of it, uh, pretty, uh, almost exactly the same in terms of their content. There, there's possibly a parallel also in Luke chapter 4. It's not perfectly clear whether or not uh, both of these are about, by the, about the same incident. In Luke chapter 4, we read of Jesus going to Nazareth and, and preaching, teaching in the synagogue, and clearly saying, the scripture that I've just read from Isaiah is being fulfilled in me. And they take great offense at that, and in fact attempt to kill him at that point. Uh, but he does not allow that to happen. Now, it's not clear whether that's the same incident as we're reading here in Matthew, and Matthew is just giving us a more condensed uh, version of it, or if this is a separate incident that takes place later uh, in Jesus' ministry when Jesus goes back to Nazareth. Uh, if it's a separate incident, uh, we, we don't, we're not specifically told what he's teaching here. We're not told what scripture passage he would have read. Uh, the customary practice would have been for a scripture to be read and then uh, someone would give a teaching on that scripture. And so that's probably what, what happened here. We're not told exactly what Jesus taught here, but we've been given enough of his teaching in Matthew now. We've, we've gone through three large sections of his teaching. So we know the kind of thing that he's going to be keep preaching and teaching in this synagogue. So even though we're not told exactly what it is, we can be sure that he has given an incredibly insightful and brilliant exposition of Scripture, and that he has called his people there in that synagogue, that he has called them to repentance and faith. Uh, we know he's he, they have received the, the most excellent teaching that could possibly be given. They've received the perfect sermon. And they have quite a response to it, don't they? First thing that we're told that they, they uh, do is they are astonished. See that in our text uh, down in verse uh, 54. He's taught them in their synagogue, and they are astonished. The word, the root word behind that word astonished is literally to be struck and when I was studying this, I, I thought of the uh, English and Scottish slang word gobsmacked. If <laughs> you heard that, that term, gobsmacked, it literally means hit in the mouth. And so it's used when you're really surprised, shocked, or astonished at something. And that certainly would fit, uh, would fit this occasion. We would be more familiar with something like dumbstruck, struck speechless. Okay, so this is a very strong term. They're astonished at his teaching. This, of course, is 
is repeatedly pointed out as a response of the crowds to Jesus' teaching. We saw it earlier in Matthew. Remember when we went through the Sermon on the Mount? At the end of the Sermon on the Mount there, and the, toward the end of uh, chapter 7, we read, When Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished, same word as our text, at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. They were given a reason why they're astonished. This teaching is totally different than anything that they've ever heard before from their scribes. The scribes, of course, are the ones who preserved the scriptures by copying them, and they were the experts on their content. And so they were teachers, primary teachers of the scriptures. Uh, but in their teaching, they, they would always go back to the traditions. Uh, Rabbi so-and-so says this about this passage, or Rabbi... Uh, the other one says this about this passage, and, and so they would, they would quote various experts in the tradition that they, they were part of there, that had developed since the exile. But you remember, Jesus did not teach like that at all. Rather, he, he taught an authoritative interpretation that he get, gave. Remember, we, we saw that sermon characterized by the expressions, you have heard it said, Okay, you have heard the traditions, these are the traditions, but I say to you. And Jesus gave the authoritative interpretation of Scripture, and they're astonished that he dared speak with such authority. We read a similar response of astonishment from people in Jerusalem, or we will read in chapter 22 of Matthew. The Sadducees come at Jesus, and they think they've got the perfect argument to stymie him uh, to prove that he is foolish to believe in the resurrection. And so they pose what they think is a conundrum to him, and he eviscerates that, that attack. He logically cuts it to pieces, and we're told that when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. Here is this working man with no higher education, and yet he is, is refuting by logical argument the elite of the day, the highly educated and wealthy elite of Jewish culture. Astonishment is not the same as belief, though. Astonishment is not the same as belief. There is a big difference. The crowds who were amazed at Jesus' teaching, for the most part, do not repent and come to faith. They have a momentary response to it and then just sort of go back to life as usual. Uh, we, we sometimes forget that in terms of outward results, in terms of winning converts or developing a following, Jesus is, in earthly terms, a failure during his public ministry. Most people who hear his preaching and teaching reject it. They may be astonished. They may think he's brilliant. But they don't buy what he's saying. And sadly, that's, uh, that's going to be the case in Nazareth as well. And in fact, their response is really a perfect illustration of what we were just reading not long ago, earlier in chapter 13, when Jesus explains to the disciples why he's teaching in parables. 
Remember that back in verses 13 and following? I'm speaking to them in parables. I'm using these comparisons and metaphors rather than direct speech because seeing they don't see and hearing they don't understand, he says. And he quotes from Isaiah. This people's heart has grown dull and with their ears they can barely hear and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. The people in Nazareth have already made up their mind about Jesus. Okay. They're astonished, yeah, they're impressed by him. But they've already made up their mind. And they reject his teaching out of hand because they reject him. So they ask, you notice that question they asked twice, where? Where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works is even more abrupt in the original language. It's basically where this one, this teaching, this, these mighty works. And then they ask it again. Where did this man get all these things? Down in verse 56. Their, their question, of course, is not, genuine and honest. They're not really asking for information. They're not asking for an explanation. We know that because they don't address it to Jesus even, right? If they had honestly addressed him and said, you know, we knew you growing up. This really, this really is sort of blowing our minds. You know, where, where did you get this wisdom? How do you explain what you're saying? I'm sure he would have given them an answer very similar to what he says in John chapter 8, verses 28 and 29. I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. That's the answer they could have gotten to their question. But it's a rhetorical question. They're not asking for information. They're asking. To, they're using the question to make their own point. Okay, and and so they're they're not speaking to Jesus with a question. They're speaking to one another with skepticism. The skeptics, in this instance, seek to justify their rejection of Jesus' message by by revealing that they're thinking of him in purely earthly terms. He's no more than the son of the local builder, they say. Isn't this the, the builder's son? That builder is actually a, a more accurate translation here. Uh, this is a generic term for an artisan, a craftsman. Wood is very scarce in, uh, in the promised land. The most common building material is the readily available soft stone that you see everywhere in Israel and the West Bank today. And they they cut that and they shape it and they polish it and, and build mainly with that. So probably like Joseph, his father, uh, Jesus is a stone worker. He's a skilled builder, but in the minds of these people, he can't be anything else. He can't be anything else. Where, where does he get off is sort of what's implied here. Teaching us. We know who he is. We saw him grow up. We have some of his workmanship in our homes. Maybe he's even built some buildings there in the 
in the little village. They know he hasn't gone away to study under some noted rabbi like, like Saul, who studied under Gamaliel. They, they, they know he, he's earned his living by the work of his own hands. He's never had higher education, so how could he be a prophet, much less the anointed one, the Messiah? It's a case, isn't it, of that, illustrated by that uh, proverb, familiarity breeds contempt. I'm sure you've probably heard that. And that's at least part of the meaning, then, for the proverb that, that Jesus gives down in verse 57, a prophet is not without honor except in his own hometown and in his own household. Spurgeon, uh, in commenting on this passage, points out that, that though this proverb is common knowledge, it's really a common folly. <laughs> okay. It's foolishness. Um, but it does display that tendency that we have, especially prevalent in our culture, for celebrity worship, doesn't it? Uh, the people right around us, they seem so ordinary, but, but these celebrities, these people read about in the media, presented in such glowing terms, uh, well, they, they really seem like, like somebody. They're much more exciting than some guy that grew up in your village and is a, is a manual laborer. Now, ironically, the, the very reason they give for not accepting him should actually have been a reason for believing that this is a divine gifting. They, they had seen him grow up. They had seen him provide with his own labor for his family. I, I'm sure that Jesus was was an active contributor uh, to the community there, to the religious community, as well as the, as the little village there. I'm sure he tithed of what he made and probably gave beyond the tithe to the poor. I'm sure he was a, the perfect role model for their children. I'm sure his example of caring for his family was exemplary. They knew him. And so when he comes preaching this way and doing these mighty works, it should have immediately brought to their mind, well, this is an anointing by God. That's the only explanation for this. But we know this man, and, and he's not one of the elite, and so for him to be able to to preach this way and to teach this way, to have this spiritual authority, this must be a sign that he has been called by God. At the very least, he must be a perfect, a prophet. It should have led them to receive his word. But actually, in their minds, it does just the opposite. It's like his, his, his Faithfulness, his being a good citizen, his being a good son and provider, that that all counted against him. If he had been some guy they didn't know, performing mighty works and, and, and giving wonderful speeches, they, they would have grabbed a hold of it. But they reject him because, because they know him personally, because they know him in an earthly sense. 
I'm belaboring that, that a little bit, and I, I'm, maybe this is sort of a rabbit trail here. <laughs> but be careful you don't let that creep into your attitude toward the people around you. Don't be disdainful of the people in your own church. You know, it's easy to read a book, to hear about somebody in the media. Uh, we do it all the time. There is a Christian media. There is a Christian celebrity status out there. Uh, and, and there's going to be a temptation for you to admire those people and think somehow they're much better than the people you worship with every Sunday. Uh, don't, don't let that happen. It's the people right around you that really count for your spiritual well-being. Who's praying for you and with you? Okay, who, who's willing to spend time talking with you in the fellowship time next Sunday? Uh, who, who's going to be concerned about your needs when they hear about them? You know, it's the people right here in the local body of Christ. Now, don't be disdainful. Don't, don't be like the Nazarenes here and look down on people just because you're familiar with them. In fact, uh, in fact, Roman, Paul says in Romans chapter 12, speaking to a church, outdo one another in showing honor. There is how you behave toward one another. You outdo one another in showing honor. You look for reasons to honor one another. These people gave Jesus no honor because they thought they knew who he was. In the church, we're called to do just the opposite. It's the people you know that you want to treat with the greatest honor. So I hope you can do that. Don't take one another for granted, but be willing to give and receive from one another according to the spiritual gifts that God has given to you all. The people of Nazareth will be ashamed to admit that they failed to benefit from the ministry the Son of God. Now, don't let that be said of you. Be grateful for the congregation where he's placed you and willing to receive words and acts of love from one another. Well, it's clear then that this disdain on the part of the, the people of Nazareth is both uh, sinful and contrary to logical reasoning. Okay, they had no reason to act this way and it in fact stemmed from from their own sin. They should, as I said a minute ago, they should have expected, been expecting this, in fact. Moses had given them a word back in Deuteronomy. God is going to raise up a prophet like me from among you. So from among you, he's going to raise up a prophet, and you need to listen to him. They, they, they should have perceived that and responded to it. So their refusing to do that shows that they're biased against the truth. Now, of course, Jesus hadn't done anything offensive. So there's really quite a bit of irony when we read in the beginning of verse 57 that they took offense at him. To transliterate that word from the Greek, You'd say they were scandalized by him. Can you imagine it? They were scandalized by Jesus. In fact, someone has pointed out that the person who scandalizes people most in the New Testament is Jesus. He's the one that, that this response is most often directed at. 
Literally, the, the word here comes from the piece of wood in a trap that springs the trap and catches the animal. Uh, so it's literally to say that they were trapped by him. Uh, it's, it's used in parallel construction with the idea of tripping up someone. So it's saying they were offended, they took offense, they were tripped up by Jesus. Now, they have no reason to respond that way. That doesn't mean that there is no such thing as being offended. So, so we might do well to take a couple of minutes and, and think about that. There is an offense that is caused by people against one another because of their own sin that is wrong. In fact, Jesus has used this term, it was translated offense here, in one of his parables. Remember in the parable of the weeds, he says that his angels will come and they will take out of his kingdom all lawbreakers and all offenses. He uses this term. He will they would take out anything that causes people to be tripped up morally, anything that causes them to be offended and to lose faith. Now, that cleansing hasn't happened yet. So you live in a world, you live in a world where there are offenses, where there are things that are going to morally trip you up, where there are things that will offend you in a way that will encourage you to sin. Jesus says you need to watch out for that. So you do need to watch out for offense. Start, he'll tell you, with yourself. <laughs> the person who will most likely offend you, trip you up, lead you into sin, is you. <laughs> Remember, he, he describes that very vividly in the Sermon on the Mount where he's interpreting the law, and he says, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Here it is. If your right eye causes you to sin. He's using our verb there. If your right eye offends you, trips you up, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, offends you, trips you up, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go to hell. Now, clearly, Jesus is speaking metaphorically there, and he's not encouraging self-mutilation. But what he's doing is saying you need to take a really radical approach to that within you, that sin nature within you, that will trip you up. The problem isn't so much out there, he's saying, it's right here. It's in your thinking. So be, be vigilant and be ruthless in tearing out of your thinking anything that tempts you to sin. Now, another source of offense that he identifies is trials, difficulties, hard times. Remember the parable of the sower? He talked about the seed that falls on rocky ground. It's the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. 
yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while, and when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. And the word there behind he falls away is the word from our text. He is, is immediately offended. He's tripped up. Hard times can trip you up. Okay, we see that in the story of Job, don't we? Hard times, persecution can trip you up. Don't let it happen, Jesus is going to say. It is trials and persecution that became the offense for Jesus' own disciples. Matthew 26, we're going to read that account of the, the last night there he has with the disciples before he's arrested, and he tells them, you're going to all fall away. And he uses this verb. You're all going to be offended because of me. You're all going to be tripped up because of me. And, of course, Peter, being the spokesman for the whole group, and always quick to respond, said, no, 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 no. They may all fall away. All the other disciples may be offended, but I won't. And, and Jesus, of course, gives him that word. Oh, you know, you're going to deny me three times before the night's out, Peter. Hard times, hatred of others can cause you to waver in your faith. Don't let that trip you up. Well, how do you keep from getting tripped up? <laughs> Either by yourself, those sinful tendencies in your own mind, or your circumstance. Well, I, I think Jesus gives us some important guidance to that in John 15. Again, going back to where he's with his disciples the night before he's betrayed. He... he he tells them things, he says, to help them not be offended, to help them not be tripped up. The first thing he tells them is, if you belong to Jesus, the world hates you because it hates him. Hard times, persecution, are not a sign that you don't belong to God. They're not a sign that you don't belong to Christ. You know, sometimes we react that way. We, you know, hard times come and we think, well, God's not hearing my prayers. I guess he doesn't love me. And Jesus says to his disciples, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you are of the world, then the world would love you. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. So, so remember, the hard times are not a sign that you don't belong to Christ. In fact, it may be just the opposite. If you're in, enduring persecution for the sake of Christ, that's a sign that you belong to him. Now, a second encouragement that he gives there in John 15 to help you overcome trial and persecution and, and sin is, is, is the Holy Spirit. When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. I've said all these things to you to keep you from falling away, to keep you from being offended, from being tripped up. The second, second thing to remember is that you've been given the Holy Spirit. If you've been born again, you have the Holy Spirit to strengthen you, to give you wisdom and to give you the power to resist sin. And thirdly, 
At the end of his teaching time to the disciples on that night, remember that even when you're tripped up by some offense, even when trial and persecution gets to you or you give in to your own sinful flesh, be assured that because Christ has overcome sin on your behalf, he will enable you to overcome as well. Don't let a momentary setback cause you to throw in the towel. Jesus says to his disciples, Behold, the hour is coming, and indeed it is come, when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. You're going to fail. That's what he's saying. You're going to desert me. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in you, me you may have peace. Isn't it striking that he says that right at that moment? You're all going to desert me, but I want you to know I'll give you peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. You're going to desert me, Jesus is saying, but my victory will be yours. You may fail at this moment, but I'm winning the victory over sin so that you can overcome sin. Now, that's how to resist being offended. Don't forget to, to try not to be an offense to others as well. Don't be a source that influences others to sin. That includes uh, unbelievers who don't have the spiritual understanding that you do. Or could you look at examples uh, like that? But, but let me... Let me skip to one in chapter 18 of Matthew, where Jesus warns against causing his humble followers to sin. Whoever humbles himself like this child, he says, is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and be drowned in the depth of the sea. Be careful not to offend others, even indirectly. Paul deals with this at length in Romans chapter 14. We won't go into detail there, but he talks about being careful not to give an offense to one who is weak in the faith, one who is not as strong as you in the faith. Be careful that you don't give them offense. Place their needs ahead of yours. Watch out. For those that cause divisions and create obstacles, that is, trip people up, he says in Romans chapter 16, contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught, you know, guard against others tripping people up in the church. Be, be a defense against offense for your fellow believers. And the surest way, of course, to avoid being an offense to others is to replace that with the positive action of loving one another. John says this in 1 John, Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you have had from the beginning. And that old commandment that's now new, of course, is to love one another. He goes on to say, This is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. 
Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. See the connection there? If you're walking in love, if you're motivated by love, then you won't be an occasion for offense to others. Replace that negative behavior with the positive behavior. Now, you can be very godly in your living, but sometimes people are going to take offense. And remember, remember that in that, you're not greater than your Savior. For every person, Jesus is either the cornerstone or the stumbling stone. That imagery is taken out of Psalm 118 and used in the New Testament. For every person, Jesus is either a stumbling stone, a rock of offense, like for these people in Nazareth, or he becomes your cornerstone. He becomes the, the solid basis for your life, that which lines up your life. Jesus is always either one or the other. There are just numerous passages that talk about that. Ultimately, of course, it's a matter of faith. That's where our, our passage ends, doesn't it? He did not do mighty, many mighty works there because of their unbelief. It all boils down to faith in the end. Now, this isn't to say that, that your faith has to be perfect. Okay, you probably remember that vivid scene where a man comes seeking a healing for his son, and Jesus asked him, Do you believe? Do you have faith? The man has just said, if, if you do anything, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for the one who believes. And you remember the response the man gives? I believe. Help my unbelief. And Jesus graciously responds to his request. Your faith doesn't have to be perfect, but your faith does need to be in Christ and in Christ alone. That is the profession that, that we make as we come to this table today to observe the Lord's Supper. We, we, are, we are in a very physical way expressing our faith in Jesus Christ. Hodeberg Catechism answers the question, who should come to the Lord's table with this answer? Those who are displeased with themselves because of their sins, but who nevertheless trust that their sins are pardoned and that their remaining weakness is covered by the suffering and death of Christ. And who also desire more and more to strengthen their faith and to lead a better life. Hypocrites and those who are unrepentant, however, eat and drink judgment on themselves. As we come to this table this morning, we're expressing our displeasure with our sin because we're acknowledging that it took the death of Jesus Christ to make atonement for that sin. And we're expressing our faith in him alone for salvation. We bring nothing in our hands, we say. We simply receive the grace that he has extended to us through Jesus Christ. 
And God is pleased to meet his people in this sacrament and to strengthen them and to encourage them. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful that, that your word has shown into our lives. We're, we're no better than these people in Nazareth. There's, there's nothing that sets us in a class apart from themselves. They're sinners, and so are we. But in your grace, you've opened our eyes to see the truth about you and about ourselves. Help us to cling to that, Lord, and to follow you, to, to make you the cornerstone of our lives, to, to submit to your will, to seek your glory in all things. And we are confident then, Lord, that, that as we do that, you will enable us to persevere through those difficult times and hard times. And you will enable us to be an encouragement and a help to one another as well. Uh, thank you for doing that in and through us, for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.